Okay, good morning again. And today we want to, again, look at the Word of God, continuing in Second Peter chapter 2. So take your Bible and turn there. We're going to be looking at other passages this morning, but I want to just, again, remind you we're looking at the, the, the dilemma of false teaching, and we know we live in a world, and really the, there's always been false prophets, there's always been false teachers, there always will be. Even as we get closer to the end, there's going to be more. So the church has to be more discerning now than ever. And remember, as we look in and read Second Peter, we know that in this book, uh, Peter, getting close to the end of his life, thought it very necessary to teach on the things that are contained therein, because in it is the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that knowledge and the truth that we're given in the Word of God will make us more holy and useful as we are cooperating with the Spirit of God to sanctify us. And, of course, it will make the church more ready for the Lord's coming and for living the Christian life. And also it will make the church more discerning to know what's going on out there, what's being taught out there, to be able to pick up a book, to be able to listen to somebody speak and quickly discern whether they're speaking the truth or they're not. And the reason for that is because we have a more sure word of prophecy, the word of God, the written word of God that is reliable, it's illuminating, it's revealing, it's, it's trustworthy. And of course, because it is, we ought to pay a lot of attention to it and that's what it says in Second Peter one nineteen. It would do well to pay attention to a as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Until the Lord comes back, we ought to spend spend a lot of time in the Word of God. So uh, you know we it transforms our minds, our thinkings, our heart, every part of our life and that we're able to know what's going on. So the scriptures are God's communication to us. It is authoritative. Uh, it, it, the Spirit of God enables us to understand the Word of God. It is the source of our authority, as in the case of the false teacher, is the Word of God is not the source of their authority. And so, so the great danger that faces the church are uh, false teachers. So... The spirit of the age in which we live uh, kind of likes the idea that when it comes to spiritual matters and matters of truth and things of truth, they like things to be fluid. Uh, they don't want to arrive at any kind of convicting truth. The idea that the Christian message should be kept pliable and ambiguous seems especially attractive to young people today. They're more into the music and the cultural part of Christianity than they are the very truth of the Word of God. They're in, lo they're in love with the spirit of the age. They can't really stand authoritative biblical truth applied with precision as a corrective to worldly lifestyles and worldly mindsets and ungodly, unholy behavior. So, as it says in The Truth War, the book, the poison of this perspective 
is being increasingly injected into the evangelical church. So that's why we need to be discerning as believers. So as we get into it, let me just have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the word of God. Lord, thank you this morning for bringing us together in this way as we sit around our tables, as we sit on our couches, as we sit in our homes. Uh, You've given us a beautiful day, and I pray, Lord, you would keep us unified during this time. I pray that you would keep us from any kind of schism or division or suspicion. I pray that we would grow in our love for you and each other, and that you would help us to keep the unity the Spirit of God's given us in the bond of peace. And I pray, Lord, that we would be giving ourselves over to examination and to learning the truths of scriptures, that they would be welded and embedded upon our heart. I pray that for us, Lord, and bring us back uh, to assemble together sooner than later, Lord, and give us the wisdom to know when and how to do that. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So we've been looking at the, the discerning the threats of false teachers to the church, and of course, We have been looking at six reasons false teachers are a threat to the church. So far, we have discovered, number one, false teachers cleverly teach destructive heresies in chapter 2, verse 1. Secondly, false teachers deny the God of the Bible, uh, deny the... They even deny the master who bought them, that these false teachers deny the Lord God, their creator, who made them. And as creator, he owns them. These false teachers claim to be part of the household of God, but refuse to submit to the master. And they deny him by disobeying the word of God. They deny him by teaching aberrant teaching, false teaching. They deny him by their very behavior, by a sinful lifestyle. They are living actually in contradiction to his life and his teaching. So false teachers, they knew the truth. However, they turned from the truth. They are professors in word, but reject the authority of the creator and actually deny the redemptive offer and purchase that God has offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they say no to the one who has the power and the authority to genuinely save them. And it's not like they ever were genuinely saved. Actually, they are apostates. And an apostate, uh, apostates are not necessarily people who leave the institutionalized church. They leave the truth. That's what an apostate is. They usually stay in the church, but they leave the truth. So an apostate is a defector from the truth. Someone who has known the truth, given some, even shown, even has shown some affirmation to the truth, and even at points proclaimed the truth, but they end up rejecting it. And of course, an apostate ends up opposing the truth and then ultimately undermining the truth. But remember, not all apostates are aggressive. Not all always full, know full well that they are apostates. Many are so blinded by their evil desires that they really imagine that they are serving Christ when in fact they are doing the opposite. 
They are opposing Christ and his truth. It was the Apostle John who mentioned in his gospel, and he said in John 16, 2, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And there are some faiths and some religion out out there that do evil things in the name of quote-unquote God. And they do things thinking they're doing it in behalf of God and they're doing it in behalf of themselves and the enemy, Satan himself. So false teaching actually attacks the church like a parasite, affecting the church's corporate testimony and actually inoculating people against the real gospel, multiplying false and half-hearted disciples filling the church with people who are actually unbelievers and not believers, but think they are believers. So that's dangerous. Thirdly, false teachers bring certain imminent judgment upon themselves. We've already saw that in verse number 1 of chapter 2. They bring swift destruction upon themselves. So it seems like what they are teaching comes back upon them. And the condemnation, remember, has been long hanging over their heads. It's just a matter of time before the Lord brings down the boom and judgment comes. So just because they don't believe there will be a judgment does not exempt them from it. And then fourthly, false teachers seduce many to follow their evil teaching and shameful lifestyles. So false teachers are popular. Many, it says in verse number 2 of Second Peter chapter 2, many will follow their sensuality. Many will do that. And of course, many will derive guidance from their teachers who move often outside the church and outside the word of God to pursue their false ideas and false practices like teaching uh, that comes from people who teach positive thinking and certain psychological logical methods and worldly philosophies and mystical teachings. All those things are kind of like piled into it. But from verse number two, the main reason for their popularity is it's a sensual type of teaching. Sensuality is the main reason because they appeal to people's base desires and felt needs. They, they advocate a freedom of the f- flesh, a unbridled living, live the way you want. God's forgiven you of all those things. So the false teachers are really propagating a wicked and a shameful lifestyle centering on a shameful immorality. Now, they're not teaching it that way. This is the Word of God and the Spirit of God exposing what's really going on in their heart because they have twisted sexual desires. They indulge in evil pleasures, and of course it leads to often committing adultery and multiple marriages. They uh, are not obeying the Lord. So these false teachers believe that following their own lust and showing no restraint were signs of maturity. False teachers uh, teach that freedom in Christ is to follow your own sensuality, your own truth, not the truth. And of course they lure false The false teachers lure people into their worldview and how 
they can think that you ought to live and get the best you can out of the life on this earth. So false teachers, for false teachers, freedom in Christ is to follow their own lusts, their own desires, their own passions, not the truth. Actually, they are slaves to corruption. Chapter 2, verse number 19, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For it says, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So the false teachers actually are feeding the strongest urges of the fallen nature of of humanity, to be wealthy, to be healthy, to be prosperous. And so the highest goal these teachers offer for their followers is to pursue the passing pleasures of the world. For them, the evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence in a person's life is material prosperity, mindless emotionalism, seeking spiritual experiences, and supposed miracle encounters. If you don't encounter these things, of course, the result will be, or the retort will be, you don't have enough faith. So instead of the real evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in the believer that Peter has been teaching, growth in spiritual maturity, practical holiness and godliness, Christ-likeness, where the Holy Spirit convicts the person's heart of sin and helps that person combat worldly lusts and cultivates the spiritual fruit in that person's life so they can be the people of God and show that they are. And so... According to Scripture, someone claiming to be a Christian and a teacher of God, if they display an immoral character, it actually invalidates the gospel message, which is characteristic of false teachers and false prophets. Uh, MacArthur rightly observes their message of independence personal freedom and self-exaltation is inherently appealing to the fallen human heart who would rather serve themselves than to submit to Christ. So what is the result and what is the effect of such godless living? That is, the effect is this, a life contrary to Jesus' life, a life that is not transformative by the gospel of Christ, a life that doesn't produce moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. It doesn't produce that. But true, healthy doctrine from Scripture produces all of that in our life, and that's what we ought to be looking for. So this Lord's Day, I want you to focus your attention on verse number 2, And what it says at the end of that verse, but I'll read the whole verse, verse uh, 2, 1 and 2. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there also will be, uh, also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. See, I want to look at that, that 
The fifth thing is that false teachers, by false teachers, the way of truth is slandered. By them, notice the word them, that's the false teachers. The way of truth will be maligned. Now, the way of truth is synonymous with the word of God. It's synonymous with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's synonymous with repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, specific truth that leads to true faith in Christ and a godly life. That's what the way of truth is. Because these false teachers have actually abandoned the gospel when the world of unbelievers look on the church and see no difference than themselves, and in some cases, worse behavior, what do they usually do? Well, they blaspheme God. And the gospel message gets a black eye. The word in our text, malign, is the word, the Greek word, blasphemeo. And that we, we get the word blasphemy from. To speak, that means to speak injuriously, to defame the reputation of God and the gospel message. So, true Christianity is given a bad reputation and condemned by outsiders who look on. In fact, if you remember in the book of Acts, several places actually in the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus Christ were called the way. For it says in Acts 19.9, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, disobedient, speaking evil of the way, of the way before the people. So this group of disciples that were following Christ and were being serious in their Christian walk were considered the way. So that means they were following a particular teaching and a particular person, and it caused a specific way of living one's life. And so here... These people in Acts were actually speaking abusive language against the way and denouncing it and insulting it. The Apostle Paul uh, was saying to a group of Jews, and it'd be good for you to turn to this passage in Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 24. He was speaking to a, a group of Jews and saying to them that, listen, if you claim to know God, if you can't claim to follow him, then your lifestyle should line up with what you are believing and what you are teaching. Now, if you notice the passage in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and of the truth, you therefore teach 
another, do you not teach yourself? And then notice what he says after the question. You preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And then notice in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it's written. So these were the Judaizers here, and these are the ones who were trying to add something to the gospel. And so because they were doing that and claiming to be a Jew connected to Abraham and in that lineage, God says, no, by your lifestyle, you have blasphemed God among the Gentiles. So when the Gentiles look upon you, they don't see the sincerity of the truth that is the knowledge of the of the truth that is bedded that is in the law they see your corrupt behavior so instead of pointing people to the path of truth that leads to genuine salvation for the saved and to a holy and godly and to holy godly living for real disciples of Christ the way of truth instead is disdained it is evil spoken of and when one talks a person who talks to talk but they don't walk the walk See, that is not good. If, if you look over to 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse number 21, notice what it says there, and I'll get there, of course, when I, when I get to that part of, the, uh, of this passage. It says in chapter 2, verse 21, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them, onto them. So, so in other words, they are, they are denying the, the truth of Scripture. Therefore, because of that, their heart is not changed, and they are living not according to the Spirit of God transforming them, but according to their own lust, passions, and desires. Now, a great example of this is found in 2 Samuel, Chapter 12, verse number 14, and what ha- what's going on there is that King David, that's when King David committed adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan came to David and says, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheming, blaspheme, the child also that is born of you shall surely die. So David, of course, because of his bad behavior before being a king and being a commander of an army, and of course committing adultery, committing murder, what did he do before his enemies? He didn't get his enemies to bring praise to the Lord. He got his enemies to blaspheme the Lord. So imagine this. By bad lifestyles of people who call themselves Christian can cause people to treat God and his word disrespectfully and irreverently. Now, we should all take that to heart. We may not be a false teacher, but our behavior does reflect what we believe. Even in our home, with our 
wives and our children, with as we function on our jobs, as we just live our regular life, it's going to tell what we really believe. What are the deep convictions of our heart? And believe me, we don't, none of us, I don't, you don't, want to have such a bad lifestyle that it causes people to treat God and his word disrespectfully and, and irreverently, and of course, the, the word being used here to blaspheme God, to say to, him, to, say to uh, you that I don't see God in your life, I don't see the transformation of the spirit of God in your life, I don't see any change in your life. Well, that's, that's a, an indictment against where we're at spiritually. You have to question even one's salvation. If somebody cannot even determine whether you're a believer or not by the way you behave. So it both goes together as a Christian. God saving us changes us. I've been preaching that for years, and it's always coming up in the Word of God. This is not moral behavior. This is spiritual transformation that is produced by the Spirit of God and our cooperation with the Spirit of God and our minds being embedded in the truth of God's Word, seeing the world from God's perspective, seeing the world from through the lens of Scripture, taking everything and running it through uh, the Scripture so we determine whether we are believers or not. So, we as believers are to adorn the gospel. The reputation of the gospel should be, for all of us, our foremost concern when it comes to the lives that we live every day. Always examining ourselves. Always, yes, repenting of the sin, putting it to death. Wanting, desiring to want to live for Christ should be something that the Spirit of God is actually doing in our life. It was, um, there are several passages of Scripture where it really admonishes that Christians ought to believe and live in a way so that the gospel and God's character are not blasphemed, but are actually adorned. It was the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2 and 3, he said that Christians are to adorn the gospel by the way that they live so they don't discredit the gospel and that they should put no obstacles in anyone's way so no fault could be brought to the gospel. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Or he says, at the acceptable time, listen, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And then he says in verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will will not be discredited. Paul wanted to live in a way that when he offered the gospel, that his life wouldn't be a discredit to the gospel, but it would be a credit to the gospel. And then, here's a passage of Scripture that you should all turn to. It even uses the word that Peter uses here in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse number 2. That's, that's the word blasphemy, where it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 
3 through 5, speaking about wives or older women. And it says there that the wives or the older women ought to adorn the gospel by adding to their faith so that their husbands and their children will not treat God or his word disrespectfully or irreverently because of their lifestyle or their behavior. And if you notice in Titus chapter 2, verse number 3, it says older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind. And then it says being subject to their own husbands. Why? Why do they live that way? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. You know that word dishonored is in the Greek? Blasphemeo. Blasphemed. So it will not be slandered. So it will not be spoken of lightly or profaned or in any such way, but it will be exalted. It will, it will be reverent in their heart and it would be treated as something precious and a, a precious gift in the home, not only to the younger women, but to their own husbands and to their own children. See, that's the motive. There's the motive right there for, and of course, this could be this could apply to husbands too in loving their wives. That you know their prayers are hinders when, hindered when they don't treat their wife they, the way they ought to. It's the same thing. Is that if your prayers are hindered, that means God, God's looking at you in a in not a favorable way, but He's withholding His answer to prayer because you're not obeying His word. And in the same way, things can be blasphemed. And then. Take, for example, employees that work on a job. Employees ought to adorn the gospel by the way they live before their bosses and fellow workers. For what reason? So they don't discredit the way of truth. 1 Timothy 6.1 All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why are they to do that? So the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. You know the, the term spoken against? Could you guess what Greek word is there? Blasphemeo. So they don't blaspheme God and the word of God. So they don't slander it or speak lightly of it or profane it. And so our lifestyles, how we live before the world is significant to our conversion. It goes with it. It goes together. So Christians are to live before the critics of the gospel in such a way that they will be silenced. We, we learned that in 1 Peter, when we were in that epistle, where 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may... Because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's what we want. We want people to glorify God, even if they hate us, even if they come against us, 
they really, honestly, when it comes right down to it, can't find any real fault because of the character that Spirit of God has been developing in our life. Even First Peter 3.16 where it says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So here's the bottom line. The bottom line, and one commentator said it well, the only way to make the gospel believable is for Christians to live the kind of righteous lives that make it believable. That's good. That is what ought to happen. So see, we ought to be convicted about this. We ought to be convicted about every single area of our life. Yes, this is talking about false teachers. But believe me, if, it's going, if we're going to live a life that does the same thing false teachers do, then what's the point there? right? We ought to be examining ourselves because we ought to know better, in other words. Not knowing what we believe is not a th- authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity is we know what we believe and we know what we ought to do. So advocating ambiguity exalting uncertainty, or otherwise deliberately clouding the truth is a sinful way of really nurturing unbelief. It is not a way of nurturing belief. So a key characteristic of those actually who reject the truth and don't love the truth is that they're ultimately going to be say, I mean, uh, judged. In fact, the key characteristic of those who perish in Second Thessalonians 2:10, in other words, who are damned by their unbelief, is that what, it, what does it say there? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. See, that's it, that every true Christian should know and love. The truth. That's what they ought to be doing. And in fact, the false teachers, what do they usually do too? They add to the truth. They take away from the truth. They ignore the truth. They twist the truth. They twist it from what is already written in Scripture. They add extra rules to be saved and sanctified. They often say stuff like, for example, listen, that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a believer. Not all groups say that, but that would be one of the things. So when the word of truth gives ample warning not to do that, in fact, there are four places in Scripture, five places in Scripture that warns in Deuteronomy 12 or Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, it says, you shall not add to the word. And it says also in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, you shall not add nor take away from it. In Proverbs, it says, do not add to his words or he will reprove you and will, and you will be proved a liar. In Ecclesiastes, it also says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. And there is nothing to take from it. 
for God has so worked that men should fear him. And of course, the Revelation passage. Chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 18, I testify in, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if in anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So the way of truth is a very important uh, concept, doctrine, for the Christian. Because, just think of it for a moment. How do we know what is true? That's what people would say. What, what is the definition of truth? Well, first and foremost, God is truth. God and truth are inseparable. God is what makes truth true. If, if we just examine, just take a brief examination of Scripture, we find out that God is actually truth. For it says in Psalm 31, verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. And then it's in Isaiah 65, verse 16, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. So God is truth, but it also tells us that Jesus is truth. The incarnate Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, that God is the very essence and embodiment of truth itself. That is why God incarnate in Jesus Christ is also called the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father but, the, but through me. And then it also said it, says it right here in Second Peter. Remember, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. So this Again, in verse chapter 1, verse number 8, And if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is truth. Jesus is truth. So God is the, the source of all that exists. God alone defines what is true. He is the ultimate re revealer of all truth. He sets the boundaries. He sets the meaning of what is truth. Every truth revealed in nature was authored by him in Psalm 19. God gave us minds and consciences to perceive the truth and comprehend right from wrong. God gave us the perfect, infallible truth of Scripture. He gave us Sufficient, true revelation of everything pertaining to life and godliness we've been learning in Second Peter. See, God sent Christ to be the embodiment of truth. Where it says in Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long, ages, long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many 
portions and in many ways in these last days spoken to us in his son. See, God gave us truth to lead us to him as Savior and Lord. What does it say in Peter? For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so he might bring us to God. The scripture also tells us that the Holy Spirit is truth. Promised and sent by the Heavenly Father. John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Also, John 15, verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth. And then in John 16, 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak not of his own initiative, but whoever hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what will come. See, the Spirit, the truth of the Father, of the Jesus, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and the truth of the Bible are the very same thing. It tells us in Ephesians, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. But 1 John, the gospel of, or the epistle of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 6, a very significant passage of Scripture where he was telling his people, his audience, that if you know God, you know something else. And this is what he says. He says, we are from God, 1 John 4, 6. He who knows God listens to us He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. See, it's those... So then, when we know God and listen to him from his word, we know what truth and what error is. We know these things. That is vital for our discernment against the threat of false teachers to know the truth. But let me just say this. Have you ever tried defining truth apart from God? It's almost, it is impossible to do. When someone tries to define truth apart from God, and many have, many have tried, one runs into, actually one runs into, right at the start, three serious problems. There's a, there's a fine little book called What is Your Worldview? And in that book, it's contained of kind of like, if you want to know what your worldview is, read through this, this book. It kind of examines it and comes to certain conclusions, which is very interesting. So the first problem is a problem of definition. Take, for example, someone handling the truth question about is there objective reality? Some believe or claim to believe that all truth is relative. Relativism is the view that there is no objective truth, whether it's for an individual or for a cultural 
group of people. Relativism is surprisingly widespread in our day. Relativists say that what's true for one person need not be true for another person. Or what's true for people in one culture needn't be true for people in another culture. Now, such people often insist that truth isn't something, isn't something out there to be discovered, but they insist that truth is something we choose or create for ourselves. They ultimately say that truth is always inside of us rather than outside of us. That is not true. That is a lie. While the statement, there is a God, may be true for some people, it doesn't have to be true for everyone, they say. They say we should speak about truth as though truth is the same, is, as though truth is the same for everyone. Rather, we should speak about my truth and your truth and their th- truth. How incredible is it to think? Dynamite is explosive. Could be true for some people, but not for others. Would you be willing to test out that theory? I don't think so. Could a statement such as, the planet Earth has one moon, really be true for people in one culture and not for people in another culture? You see, it becomes a fool's errand if you don't start with objective truth. As soon as you disassociate truth from the knowledge of God, you just can't accurately define truth. In the end, it's hard to deny that there really is objective truth. By the way, truth is outside of ourselves rather than inside of us. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And because of that, what does it say in Psalm 14.1? They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. But in contrast to that, other people insist that many truths, including the most important truth, are objective truths. Objective truths are true for everyone, everywhere, because... They're based on objective facts about reality that are independent of human desires and human ideas and human feelings. It makes no sense to say that the statement, there is a God, could be true for me, but not true for you. Either it's true or it isn't. That's the end of the story. See, that's what we ought to be considering as believers. So we have a problem of definition, but a second problem that comes when we disassociate truth from the knowledge of God is we have a a problem with the immoral implications that come. Because when we disassociate truth from the knowledge of God, it results in unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and immoral living. That's what The Apostle Paul was telling us in Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 32, he says, And just as they did not not see 
fit to acknowledge God any longer. There's the problem. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding. And then it goes on to say, although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give heartily, hearty approval to those who practice them. So there's a, immediately when you divorce and disassociate the knowledge of God with truth, then you have a moral problem. And this is what the false teachers have. They have a moral problem because of this very thing. They, they malign the way of truth, and then they go their own way. And then immorality is, is a given. Greed is a given. Wickedness is a given. Evil is a given. In moral, in moral living and unrighteousness, they're given. But then you have a, an epistemological problem, too, and that's just the problem of knowledge. All right, As soon as you, you disassociate truth from the knowledge of God, how do you know what's evil? How do you know what's good? How do you know what's right, what's wrong, what's truth, what's error, what's God's way, with whichever other way? You don't know. You don't know because there's no standard to judge by. And of course, if you're left with your own standards and the standards of the world, they are crooked standards. So God has established the standard of what is true and what is right. Philosophers had their day in which they tried to define truth without God. From the time of Christ, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they tried. In the middle of the, in the, middle of the 17th century, Rene Descartes, John Locke, Immanuel Kant, Hegel, they tried. Right up into the modern system of, of our time, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Marx, and the pragmatism of, of Henry James, they all tried. They all utterly failed to account for truth and the origin of human knowledge apart from God. So what we learn from the philosophers not that we haven't learned things from them, we have. But what we learn from the philosophers is that it is impossible to make sense of truth without acknowledging the source of all truth, which is God. False teachers are a threat to the true church because they are not just in search of truth. They have known the truth even shown affirmation to it, and perhaps even proclaimed it for a while, but they then they defect from the truth, then undermine the truth, which causes people to blaspheme God and leads their followers astray, yes, even into the pit of hell. And of course, then they are driven by what? Well, the next thing that we're going to look at in this passage of scripture in Second Peter is that in their greed, false teachers will fabricate clever words. In other words, in their greed, they will lie to you. They will do everything and say anything to keep the money coming, to keep their lifestyle funded. See, that's why we have to be discerning to avoid and point out 
and yes, mention by name and call out and know for ourselves that every book that is written in a bookstore and endorsed by people that have names, we should not just take that at face value. We should consider whether they are true or false because there is a lot of false prophets being proclaimed that and endorsed as real believers, and they are not. So we have been given the reasons for the threat of false teachers and their doctrine upon the church up until this point. And we find out that their teaching is not easily detected. It takes discernment. Their teaching leads to hell by the signs of heaven. Their teaching denies the master and creator. Their teaching caters to the masses of people. That's why they can get great crowds. And their teaching gives truth a bad name. Brethren, let's be discerning as believers. Let us know what we believe. And make sure that we're not just talking the talk, but we're walking the walk. The way we live backs up what we believe, and what we believe backs up the way we live. Let's live like that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Your kindness, Lord, to me and to our church has been over the top, Lord. We give you praise for answering our prayers. We give you praise for giving us a church like you've given us. In this time, you've given us people who are discerning and people who want to discern more, who want to grow in Christ. I pray, Lord, that that would never end. Don't let us get lazy. Don't let us slack, Lord. Let us always be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us because we know the truth. And, Lord... Continue to allow us to make our lives line up with the gospel so we do not bring, uh, cause others to blaspheme your name. Forgive us, Lord, when we sin and help us to deal with our sin biblically and not deal with it in a short period of time. And Lord, help us to not just keep committing the same sin over and over again, but putting it to death so we don't see that sin in ever again, and it dies off because we we stop feeding it. And Lord, let our love for you grow to a point where, Lord, we don't want to sin because we know it grieves our Lord and it causes others to look at him and his gospel in an evil way. So, Lord, help us today. We need the Spirit of God to guide us into all truth. And, Lord, we, we want our lives to be example of the way of truth and not uh, be a stumbling block to it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.